Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with a very special guest, Brock Yenigan of Stylus Capital. Stylus Capital is an asset manager that uses, among other things, quantitative uh, strategies. Brock, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Eric. Thanks for having me. So I met you on, on Twitter because I've been tweeting a bit about founder pooling and founder diversification, and it's a topic you've been thinking about uh, as well. Why don't you trace your evolution through how you got excited about founder pooling, uh, founder diversification, and uh, and what, what's the need for it or, or, or what inspired it? Yeah, sure. So I guess uh, the whole thing is traceable back to us running quantitative momentum strategies on cryptocurrencies uh, since 2018 because of our investment operation. Quite often, I found myself self thinking about uh, price trends across different asset classes, and uh, there is a lot of academic work done around that about why those things happen. Because in a perfectly efficient market, such an anomaly should not exist. And within that context, on Twitter and elsewhere, I, I quite often saw these pieces about you know how the early stage valuations are rising for startups, etc. I just thought, you know, what, what does that signal? What is that? Because you know, if you have a rising prices for oil, um, that signals a scarcity of oil or for anything really. Uh, so, what does the higher prices in early stage companies? What does that signal? And that's what got me uh, started. And I think that the reason for that rising prices is traceable back to a founder scarcity. Um, that's kind of what led me along this route. And I think that, uh, and we can get into what the fix for it might be, but I think that uh, the fix for that scarcity will be founder pooling of risks and de-risking the entrepreneur. I think that's going to be a crit critical piece for the fix. Let's go deeper here because it doesn't make intuitive sense. You know, we have more founders than ever before and yeah. yet valuations are, are higher. So, you know, valuations were, uh, you know, lesser a decade ago or they uh, weren't as high or lower rather. Uh, so why? Uh, and yet we had significantly less or fewer founders. So yeah, it's correct. So how does that? Yeah. So how, how could that, you know, what gives? Um, so I think, I guess what I'm referring to is a, a scarcity of quote unquote good entrepreneurs. Now it, that's, that's incredibly hard to define. And there is no, there is no doubt that the number of good entrepreneurs must have risen by, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe two X, maybe five X. I do not know the numbers, but what there is no doubt that it's rising, but it looks like then that rise is not catching up with the rise of capital available and the rise of ideas and uh, ideas that are available to be tested. So if we can, if we think of startups as a cocktail of, you know, people and ideas and capital, people are rising, but ideas and capital is rising even more. The reason for the rise in ideas could be traceable back to internet and how, what an explosive upside that brought. Uh, it's beautifully captured in Naval's 2009 piece called Returns to Entrepreneurship. So, you know, the, the larger companies can be built faster and the costs to drop those ideas test uh, dropped a lot, the, the cost of testing those ideas. 
So, so that's the idea piece. And the capital piece, obviously, you know, if you just look at the U.S. Treasuries, that's just one signal uh, of what is now a global phenomenon, which is a capital abundance. And I guess, I mean, I won't go into details, uh, but there are there are all sorts of signals that just point towards the same direction. So capital is abundant. Ideas are abundant. Yes, founder numbers have increased, but looks like it did not increase as much as the other two. Right. And so maybe the solution is get more great founders or maybe the solution is, hey, get capital out or, or do something else with the capital. And it, that's, there's the belief that there's way too much capital in venture to, to begin with. But a lot of people hold that belief. Uh, yeah, I think I think it will be to get more founders. I, I think that, well, you would expect the capital, you would expect the expected returns for venture to drop down to a particular level. I don't know what that level is, but regardless of how many uh, founders there are available, unless it's so much that there is not enough capital to back them all. Um, but given the current state, you know, I think that unless founders are sudden, viable founders are suddenly, unless they rise by 10x, uh, I think that the, there will always be enough capital to supply them with, well, well with capital. So let's say if the expected returns on bonds is 2% and then if the expected returns on uh, stocks are 8%, you know, if that's where the market is going to normalize. And obviously we don't know these numbers, but we just only can kind of guess them or there's massive uncertainty around them. But for, let's say for various, due to various reasons like risk, uh, like the illiquidity, et cetera, let's say venture capital returns are going to stabilize at somewhere around 15%. Now, you can take money out of the system to make it hit 15%. Uh, or if there's a lot of founders, money will come in and find them at that average hurdle rate. And of course, I'm just talking conceptually in real life, like nothing is works this perfect. And of course, there's a massive power law distribution, but I'm just talking about the venture average. And it's a, it's a very interesting question where that average needs to be, because venture capital itself is probably power law distributed. So I don't think that necessarily moving with capital is much of a solution. I think that as a society, we would just get a lot more innovation per venture dollar risk uh, if we just get more founders. And I, and I think that we can get more founders. Just to keep double clicking here, uh, can't the rising early stage valuations be explained by by other things? Yeah. Uh, so um, the I guess the conventional wisdom, and this is this is actually this is the path that kind of led me to think that, oh, well, looks like there is a founder scarcity in the world. It, it was not immediately obvious to me that the early stage valuation rise would signal that because I also first thought of the conventional ideas, which is that you know more, com- more valuable companies are built faster. That's a good reason why you would, a single Uber outcome could justify a price hike across the entire spectrum. Uh, so that's one reason. Oh, and also the excess returns in startup investing, um, you would expect that to be competed away by more capital. And that's what we just talked about. So those are the two obvious reasons. But I think that the third kind of non-obvious reason is, again, going back to ideas, capital, founder. The third reason, founder scarcity needs to exist for other two to be true in a way, because if founders were so abundant, if we had you know 10 times and 20 times more amazing founders, uh, holding everything else constant today, let's say no more venture capital coming in. If we hold everything else constant, constant, then the valuations would actually drop. So I think that's why I think the other two is not enough to explain uh, the rising prices. There is a third element, which is founder scarcity. 
What about the idea that we're just in a bubble, that this is a very temporary period uh, in time that it will, you know, things will shake out very soon um, to, to change that. How, how do you think about that, that macro yeah. dynamic? I, I guess whatever market observable metric that I have seen, like let's call it public market valuations and things like that, it is not obvious to me at all that we are in a bubble. Uh, I don't see this to be a bubble, at least in the public market sense. But in the private market sense, obviously, that's I run a hedge fund, so that's that's a much more that's a very different domain. But from again uh, to my untrained eye in the pu- private markets, it doesn't look like things are so out of hand that we are in a bubble and it, the things are going to crash. I think that if anything of course there are anomalies there are probably a lot of companies that are funded but they shouldn't have been funded and in fact you would actually kind of expect that to be the case even in a normal scenario and we can kind of go into details of why that would be the case but so i don't think that what we are experiencing is an anomaly i think this is a thing that we will see more of um there will be as long as there are founders available to be backed against this internet scale markets uh, I think that even the craziest looking ideas become viable. And I mean, this is something that you know very well. I, I'm, uh, I guess I'm, it's, it's not a fresh idea, uh, but the, even the craziest ideas become backable when you have an internet scale market. So you would expect to see anomalies or things that don't make sense. Right. Let's go in. You, you said a, a minute ago, we can go into it if, uh, go deeper on it if, if, if it makes sense. Let's go deeper that even in a, a normal time. Yeah, sure. Uh, this isn't anomalous. Yeah, sure. Like, um, uh, what is the what is the t- poster child for uh, venture capital funding anomalies? I don't know. I think there was a company called uh, Juicero that was teased quite a bit, etc. But you know, and not to pick on anybody specifically here, but even the craziest looking, I guess one way to define a good entrepreneur uh, or a good investment would be: is it a positive expected value bet? Um, you know, if I put in hundred dollars today the probability-weighted average outcome is that about $100 plus some hurdle rate. Let's call it $200 because you're going to get your money back in 10 years. So with things like Uber, you know, let's call them Uber outcomes. When you have outcomes like Uber or Airbnb, and when these ideas all came from a place of looking weird and, you know, strange, it is quite possible that you will fund 100 strange ideas and you know in retrospect dumb looking ideas you will fund hundreds of them but in the end you will still make money so that's actually uh in this apparently power law world that we are now in in the internet age um you would expect weird stuff to get funded at least just looking at, as an outsider in uh from a hedge fund perspective Sure. So uh, founders and VCs don't have a sense for how interest rates affect their business or interest rates through the broader macro economy affect their industry. Uh, can you give sort of a mini lesson of, of how, how they should be thinking about interest rates and just the Fed in general? Yeah, I don't think, uh, long story short, I don't think it affects them that much. This is going to be a, like a, a bit of a contrarian take, which I'm always happy to do. Uh, it, the reason why uh, I don't think it's going to be relevant is because the risk-free rate drop, it, it does signal that the world has capital abundance, um, that it's the capital does not necessarily find um, a lot of places to go to. So the demand for capital is low 
and so that it does signal that. But beyond that, um, it's a little bit like you know junk bond uh, space or you know high yield to use the more political term, uh, because obviously when you're investing in something that is as high risk as a high yield bond uh, or a or a startup, these things are so risky that the risk free rate. What matters a lot more than the risk-free rate is the risk appetite uh, specific to those assets. So you can almost think of it like in, in bonds, for example, this would be captured in something like credit default swap spread. So what is the average spread um, over treasuries that a high-yield bond gets funded? Sometimes that's lower sometimes, and sometimes that's higher. And we do not have something that is as market observable for startups as something like a credit default swap spread, um, but we can kind of almost kind of estimate where 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 around where it is, and that estimation can come from you know what gets funded at what valuation, etc. It it, lo- it look very much looks like the cost of capital for startups is less now. That does mean that the spread is dropping. It has dropped. It is a uh, attractive environment for a startup to raise capital, and that can of course change. In a in a minute in a, in a day if if the, if the next crisis hits, but I don't think the the main variance comes from risk appetite specific to venture capital and startups. Uh, the risk free rate is not going to move the needle much. Totally, Peter Thiel said something along the lines of zero interest rates or negative interest rates uh, sort of imply that uh, you know big companies don't think that there's anything to invest in or, or that there there aren't any good investments left. What do zero interest rates or negative interest rates uh, mean for our, our faith and ideas? I am not convinced that that's what it means because the 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 investment decisions of corporates represent a small percentage of the broader financial decisions that are made by a massive, massive economic machinery participants. It's such a small piece of it. Uh, well, it's a large piece of it, but you know, it's it's not fifty percent of it. So I think that um, it does not. It, it is very hard to kind of work your way back from low interest rate to that. I mean, he may have me meant it in a different context, or he may have other points, but just directly linking interest rates to business decisions of corporates that that doesn't um, that doesn't seem quite right to me. Maybe he said like Google is sitting on a ton of cash. Maybe that's what he's saying. He's, he's like all these big companies sitting on cash means that they don't think there's any good place to invest. Well, then they should be returning them, <laughs> but they should be returning the capital to shareholders. But I guess there's all kinds of kind of barriers, like there's tax, like the repatriation, etc. Apple, for example, when Carl Icahn ran an activist campaign against Apple, um, they he basically pushed them to return the cash by if if by nothing else than issuing debt. Which Apple then did, but yeah, like um, I guess investing inside the company into new projects is uh, is a different ball game than you know giving out the cash to shareholders and then let them decide which startup they want to back, etc. And yeah, so it, it's it's a very very complicated decision space. Totally. So so how, how is the market addressing this uh, uh, scarcity right now? Uh, where, where do we propose to, to fix it? Yeah, so right now, well, there is a saying in commodities, um, the cure for high prices is high prices. So right now, the market is trying to address the founder's scarcity by just paying more. So the problem there is that 
the market, and this is obviously not decided by any central participant. It's just like market forces at work. Uh, but the way that market is working right now, it's just it just keeps paying out more and more to entrepreneurs, as visible in early stage valuations and everything else. But the this payment stream is a probabilistic one. It's not like a software engineer salary where you know it's like a. I'm not sure if we could technically call it a deterministic, but for the purposes of this chat, let's call it deterministic. So if you if you're a software engineer, you know you're going to make let's say hundred two hundred thousand dollars a year. Uh, whereas for an entrepreneur, you are just completely facing a, a probability distribution, which is completely uncertain, by the way. So there's uncertainty and risk, um, which is both very high. So the, the problem I see is that when the payout is that uncertain and that risky, you, let's let's call let, let's say average entrepreneur makes twenty million dollars because of a couple billion dollar outcomes and a whole lot more $100 million outcomes. If the average entrepreneur is making, say, $20 million, that really doesn't mean much to him or her if that doubles. There is such a massive risk around that payout. The median entrepreneur, um, you know, let's call it 90% of the entrepreneurs are going to make zero. And the median is closer to how humans form expectations. And that's why this large mean while it's going to be marginally effective, it's going to be such a small effect that raising the prices is not going to work all that much. So I think that we could be we could do just a much better job if we just de-risk that payout a little bit. If we just reduce the gap between the median and the mean, it is going to be you know an order of magnitude more effective than just keeping raising the prices. Totally. Let's address some of the common critiques of this idea. One is that if you reduce the barriers to uh, entrepreneurship, then uh, it'll become something that everyone wants to do. And it'll be hard to, d- to determine sort of the real entrepreneurs from the, from the fake entrepreneurs. We'll have a bunch of posers. Uh, another one is that if, uh, so that's just a critique of reducing the barriers in general. Like you, you want them to have some, you want it to be the rebellious thing. You want it to be the, the thing that they have some barriers so that they prove themselves and then are more likely to start a company because of it. What do you think of that argument to keeping some barriers up to, to start entrepreneurship? Yeah. Before answering this question, maybe it would be useful if I talk a little bit more about the, you know, how this could be implemented in practice. And um, so, for example, let's imagine a set of entrepreneurs that passed some tough vetting process. Let's say uh, they managed to get into Y Combinator and then they secured some pre-seed funding or whatever it's called these days, like earliest possible stage funding. So that those are two quite difficult hurdles to overcome. Um, and let's say there's hundreds of such entrepreneurs. What, what could be done is if all these hundred entrepreneurs contributed a very small portion, let's call it 5%, they contributed 5% of their uh, equity in their company into a central pool and then if everybody got in exchange, 1%, because there's hundreds of them, what, what that would ensure is, let's say a founder made $2 billion out of, you know, one out of those hundred founders, and nobody else made any money. Uh, their startup did not work out. So the, the, that founder had contributed 5% to the central pool. And I guess that comes out to 100 million, I believe. Everybody gets 1% of that. So that's $1 million outcome for everybody achieved, regardless of whether their startup worked out or not. So that basically 
ensures that the median outcome is not zero, it's $1 million, and actually that's shared by everyone. So that's the sort of risk reduction that I think could benefit a lot, and it could basically, in a way, it could frack, <laughs> just like fracking, you know, when uh, fracking was invented, you know, you were able to uh, release the oil from the rocks that they were trapped in. I think that kind of risk reduction can suddenly frack talent from their rocks, which I guess would be their employment, you know, secure jobs at Google, Facebook, et cetera, et cetera, because there's a lot of people, and there's nothing wrong with that, except that there's a lot of people who would rather become founders who are currently, they are facing a different, you know, risk appetite. They have a different risk appetite than the actual founders. And going to the uh, criticism that you mentioned, those are certainly possible. It is possible that we want the only most risk, high risk appetites and uh, boldest and the most confident entrepreneurs. But we don't know that. We have not run the experiment. This is such a complex domain with so much uncertainty that while I agree that maybe a more risk-averse entrepreneur will generate less outcomes, that's certainly a possibility. It is also entirely possible that actually more risk-averse founders are more sane or they're more, they're, they could have some all kinds of positive characteristics that actually make them more interesting as founders to back. That's entirely possible considering how complex this domain is. But even if that were not the case, let's say that risk-sharing founders are indeed worse entrepreneurs, quote-unquote, and in, in this sense of the word, worse would be somebody who would achieve a lower expected value outcome. Well, that's still as long as that's still a positive expected value outcome, the money will find that entrepreneur at the appropriate hurdle rate. So uh, they will still be able to make money for their investors, probabilistically speaking, and they will create a lot of uh, products and services that we as consumers will benefit from. Let's talk about uh, ways in which this can fail. How, how, how could this not work? Yeah, apart from you know, the risks that we just mentioned, you know, what we just discussed about uh, whether or not risk sharing could mean that the entrepreneurs are not going to be as aggressive, etc., I guess there's a question of um, abstraction level, I guess. That would be a right way to put it. Uh, so, for example, maybe this risk-sharing scheme really should be done inside a venture capital firm. And um, I think that you know that's certainly a possibility. The reason why I think that that wouldn't quite work is because the number of entrepreneurs in a, funded by a single venture capital firm, by definition, is going to be quite limited. And there was this great piece by... Jerry Neumann, if I'm pronouncing the name correctly, uh, I think it was called Power Laws in Venture, where he basically talks about how if indeed in the startup world, if we are indeed drawing from a power law distribution, then the mean of that distribution goes up as we sample more companies. So that means that if we, are, if we have a pool of 1,000 entrepreneurs that are risk-sharing, instead of 30 entrepreneurs that are risk-sharing, the average outcome in the 1,000 pool is going to be larger. And of course, obviously, the risk is going to be lower as well. So I would expect that to outcompete the 30 founder pool. So, so that's one reason. And also, maybe you know, out of 30, you may not get the critical mass of founders that will want to contribute in this kind of scheme. There is actually a venture capital firm that is now sharing, I think there's more than one, uh, they're sharing their carry, 20% of their carry or something like that with their founders. Um, now, that's definitely a step in the right direction. And I think it could definitely 
I'm hoping it would be successful. But I think that the problem with sharing carry is that the, the carry sharing is gonna uh, resemble returns on capital rather than returns on entrepreneurship. What the entrepreneurs will probably want, and you know that would be the case if it were me, they will probably want the extremely positively skilled return distribution of um, startups. You know, we can the positive skew, negative skew. That's a whole you know this uh, technical discussion. But I guess what I mean is, if venture capital is funding only startups at a certain stage, then uh, after the very initial stage, the moment there is product market fit, the returns to that capital is going to quickly start resembling the returns to equity investing, uh, although it doesn't happen immediately, probably. And also returns on entrepreneurship. I mean, I guess our whole theme is that returns to entrepreneurship is higher than returns to capital. So 20% of returns on capital is going to be less attractive than 5% of returns to entrepreneurship. So I guess that's one reason why I don't think the right abstraction level is venture capital, but that could be that could be the case. I guess the biggest trick will be getting the incentives right. I mean, this kind of scheme opens itself up to all kinds of gaming, but that's true for you know raising venture capital or for you know founders as well. There there can be there are all kinds of ways that moral hazard can creep into the system. So, for example, if we we talked about how we can reduce the gap between mean and median by Five uh, percent, but maybe that number should be ten percent, or maybe it should be one percent. So maybe the mean, the median entrepreneur should achieve one percent of the mean rather than five percent of the mean. Their outcome should be lower. So there is definitely a threshold beyond which everybody gets disincentivized to work. Like the extreme case would be hundred percent. Let's say that hundred entrepreneurs they're all sharing all their uh, startup equity with each other. Uh, that's definitely a reason for disincentivization. So uh, that would be another mode of failure, I suppose. But I think that if this is as important a scarcity to fix as I think it is, then there will be all kinds of experiments that will be run. I'm hoping, and this I might be, um, this might be more uh, visual thinking, but I think that this is beyond that. I think there is something to it. I think that the market will run. Um, experiments around this. And I think that some of them will become successful and that can only be a good thing. Totally. Can you think of other ways to increase the amount of founders out there other than founder pooling? Or why is that the best lever? I guess this is about my hedge fund background, but I tend to think about these things and I reduce these things to risk and reward. I find that to be helpful in these cases, although it's of course imperfect. There's, There's all kinds of complexity involved. But I think the reward to entrepreneurs is rising and it's very visible that's why startups and investing is startup investing is so popular but we're doing very little or nothing about the risk at least that's how it seems to an outsider Um, so i think that that's the primary level because people respond to incentives and the biggest problem i see with the current incentive structure is the risk element to it Um, you know the entrepreneurs might be thinking, well, if I if I had hundred lifetimes and if I started hundred companies, you know, five of them would be runaway successes or one of them would be an amazing success. The problem is you cannot access that that branch of Monte Carlo simulation in your current life. Well, you can, um, but you need a lot of luck added into the mix. So this kind of scheme would actually allow people to access the other branches of the Monte Carlo simulation, if you will, 
if they act as a cohort and risk share between them. I feel like this is the primary level because I see that everywhere I see, whenever I see somebody who I feel would be an amazing founder, but is refusing to launch a company, that's just due to risk, not due to anything else. I, I am sure there must be other ways to increase founders. Like there must be, um, maybe there's some way to train entrepreneurs or at least improve their odds. I guess Y Combinator is doing that. And I guess they moved the needle quite a bit in terms of how many people became entrepreneurs. But at least with with my hedge fund background, um, that's the primary level I can think of, reducing risk. But, you, you know, there's a lot of, I want to bring up the, the, the biggest critiques people have of this idea. One is that we, we shouldn't reduce the barrier for entrepreneurship because it'll introduce a bunch of fakers and we want to be able to tell the wheat from the shaft and the real people to, ri- to rise up and actually have some adversity. So that the argument is that if founders have you know, diversification, they'll work less hard on their individual startup. It'll detract from their focus. And that's why you VCs don't want them to be scouts or, or have other means of diversification. And the third one uh, is it, it what you talked about earlier, which is adverse selection. Best entrepreneurs do, don't want to do it. So let, let, let's address those critiques. So Eric, yeah, re- regarding the first question. Uh, yes, absolutely. There will be a lot more fakers if this happens. And that's, you know, part of the uh, potential moral hazard. But I would imagine that there must be, I mean, I'm not in the startup investing business, but I must. I would imagine there's already a lot of fakers as there are. It is already, I'm, I'm imagining, quite difficult to parse out, you know, who is legitimate or who is really a backable founder than who is not. I don't necessarily think that that job gets, you know, five times or 10 times more difficult as we add more posers, if you will, (laughs) into the mix. Uh, I guess they will always be there. But I guess this is also a fundamentally, like I I, I completely understand the, the VC point of view, but if this is a way that the society is able to buy more innovation from founders per dollar risk, then it's almost like a market force. Um, I'm not sure that there is much to control it in, in a way that if we let's for a second assume capital is commodity. In that case, in the world that we are kind of progressing towards, it's not really going to matter what venture capitalists want. Basically, uh, if there is a bunch of, if let's say a bunch of founders decided today, like a thousand founders, they decided to share risks, give up 5% of their business for 0.1% of the fund of the central mutual, whatever we we would call it, then I think as long as those people remain attractive investment candidates, then the money will come and find them. Now, it it can definitely get more difficult, uh, but that's the venture capitalist's job to kind of figure out what's a good, who is a good bet and who is not. Uh, Their job will definitely get difficult, but um, if it will have to get difficult, it will have to get difficult. I don't think that um, this market force is going to be something that's going to revert just because venture capitalists don't want to have more fakers in the system. Yeah. The uh, the other critique people have is that um, if founders are diversified, they're unlikely to work as hard on their own individual startup. And VCs believe this really strongly. Um, uh, yeah, I, w- I would agree with that. I would agree that I, that's definitely my intuition as well. I mean, it's, it's a no-brainer one. Uh, but I would add that there is still some uncertainty around that. We don't know that for a fact, even though I imagine the VCs who are saying this, they have a lot of experience and they say that out of experience, um, I'm sure. Now, the question reframed in a 
investing or a, maybe a bit more quantitative context, let's re reframe the question as follows. If founders are risk-sharing, does it completely wipe out the positive expected returns that the venture capitalists believed they had when they backed them? Uh, sorry, that was a pretty long way to put it, but basically, if a founder is giving up 5% of his or her equity, does that wipe out the positive expected return? I mean, can the founder still turn $100 into $1,000? Maybe it will, I think I agree that it will drop. Uh, maybe instead of $100 to $1,000, it will be $100 to $500. But then the valuations could change to reflect that. So maybe the, those funders are going to get funded at a lower uh, valuation. I would kind of expect that to happen in a way. So if they were, if a founder wanted to uh, raise a pre-seed round at $5 million, but then uh, she said to VCs, well, I want to risk share. And then the VCs went back and said, okay, well, yeah, but then in that case, we will value your startup at $3 million or two or four, I don't know. And then she would take up on that deal and that's fine. I think that the market would still clear at some price point as long as the entrepreneur remains a positive expected value bet. Is the problem founder scarcity or is it that uh, VCs don't know how to pick founders and maybe there's a lot of good founders out there who are just not raising money? Yeah, I, uh, that's a great question. And I was just thinking about this like last week. Uh, I almost um, visualized the the way that the VC venture capital infrastructure is getting built as large blood vessels becoming smaller and smaller and, you know, reaching out to smaller niches of the entire uh, ecosystem. And this actually came up in the context of ideas that, are, that can be tested. You know, something similar is arguably happening in software as a service startups, etc. You know, like there was the Amazon Web Services got built and then a whole bunch of services got built on top of that. And that probably enables then a whole bunch of other services. So the software tools are getting more surgical and also venture capital appears to be getting more surgical too. So they're like the vessels that carry capital from a global pool into, you know, more surgical points across the startup ecosystem. And um, I don't know the answer to, the question, to your question, if they're un unable to identify the founders or not. I think it would be a miracle if the perfect ways were already crafted. Um, it is such a still a new industry, I mean, several decades or more, I imagine, but still in the context of this new internet world that we're operating in, it is still very, very new. And I, I have no doubt that there is a lot more room to improve how people select good bets. Uh, and that will only get better. Those skills will only get better with time. And I guess venture capital keeps getting more and more surgical with, you know, smaller funds. And, you know, uh, there are these global scout firms that are now forming, etc. So, yeah, that, that's entirely possible. But regardless of venture capitalists being good at picking the right founders, I, I agree that their job would get harder if we de-risk the entrepreneur and if there's suddenly 10 times more entrepreneurs. Should we be doing the same thing for employees, uh, pooling of employee equity? Or how do you think about that? Yeah, I, I never thought about that at all. Um, but uh, that sounds like that would be a good way to retain employees. Because if, if let's imagine two companies, uh, one allows risk sharing and the other one does not. 
and you know, in one of them, you know, the founder basically says, you know, look, everybody, um, I'm involved in this risk sharing scheme with other founders. If you want, you can come in as well. That is going to be a lever to de-risk the employees as well, because I saw a bunch of horror stories on Twitter how, about how employees were, they actually ended up taking more risk than the founder itself in a way because their stock options were locked up, etc. cetera. Uh, so yeah, I think that could be an extremely interesting lever to pull uh, when trying to attract employees as well. I think that would make sense. You can imagine the founders of competitive companies pulling equity together saying, hey, one of us is going to win. Yeah, so Uber versus Lyft question would be interesting. I guess even the the best move for them would be to actually merge <laughs> so that you know there's no competition. I guess that would be the best positive outcome. And that's the other point that we actually did not touch upon, but you know if if we address this scarcity, there will be more competition obviously. Maybe the same idea is going to per- be pursued by 10 companies instead of two companies and that is going to reduce the outcome both for capital and for uh, for entrepreneurs and who benefits from that you know ultimately consumers benefit from that because consumers manage to capture more of that surplus but uh, yeah so I, I think that Uber versus Lyft pooling could be better achieved by just merging so I'm not sure that's a huge value add but uh, if that's for whatever reason not possible then I guess the board wouldn't approve that kind of thing but theoretically I guess that's the second best option. Yeah, can you talk a little bit about about your background? So I'm the founder of Stylus Capital. Uh, I started the company in 2014. We basically invest using proven styles like value and momentum across different asset classes. Uh, More recently, we started running a time series momentum strategy on cryptocurrencies. And before launching Stylus Capital, I worked for JP Morgan and Oliver Wyman. So yeah, so I, my first day at work at JP Morgan was 15th of September 2008. Uh, so that was the Lehman bankruptcy. Uh, so that was a pretty fast um, introduction to how out of whack markets can get in times of crisis. I was originally born in Istanbul. I was born and raised in Istanbul, Turkey. I studied electronics engineering and then I probability theory and just overall finance and business related topics were of top interest to me. So I then just decided to pursue a career in finance. I was a, at some point, I was an exchange student in Fort, Color, Fort Collins, Colorado. Yeah, it was a, I, I definitely, that was one of the, it was an excellent experience. I would call it a formative experience uh, because um, that was the first time that I saw a truly pro-risk kind of business culture. Uh, all my host families were very much interested in business. So, you know, I, I felt like I found my tribe in a way. Um, so that's kind of where my interest in startups domain came from as well, beyond what we talked about in the uh, momentum and, you know, what the price signal is telling us, etc. I guess, like most other hedge fund managers I know, I first and foremost, I identify as a founder. Hopefully, maybe some of the ideas here, uh, maybe there is some merit to them and maybe somebody tests them out and it would be an interesting business experiment to see. And if anybody would like to reach out to discuss, I'm, I'm quite often on Twitter and my handle is Burak, uh, my first name, and then Y-N-G-N. Uh, so yeah, happy to chat. What do you think is the best way to structure these, these arrangements? Is it uh, these, um, these founder pooling? Like what's the infrastructure that's going to be needed in order to, to make this happen? Like could there be a startup that, that provides these or 
Yeah, I think so. I think um, there are there were there are several ways this could play out. But I had a I wrote a, a blog post about this, and uh, <laughs> I called the, the structures uh, CEO collateralized equity obligation. Uh, I guess I'm not sure if that's technically correct because I don't think that there is any collateral involved, or maybe there is. I'm not sure. I feel like this experiment is a startup or a range of startups that test out various um, incentive schemes, etc. Um, but I think that uh, fundamentally a startup structures these deals and and experiments with different incentive schemes. Like, for example, does the fund, each fund need to have a board selected by, you know, 10 founders that will be in that pool? Because how do you synchronize the timing of investments? I think the infrastructure is relatively straightforward in terms of how it should be legally. Um, but the, the messy part of it, I think, is going to come down to incentives and there are some parts where I feel strongly about, like the biggest part that I feel strongly about is that it needs to be earliest stage possible. Um, and it should be ideally same phase for each founder when they're investing. Like I said, you know, there's the positive skew and negative skew question. Uh, when a startup is early on in its life, it's pre, pre-product market fit, maybe even pre-product things are a lot more uncertain. And then that uncertainty gets reduced and slowly turns into risk, you know, known unknowns type of situation. And what you really want to do is to reduce that uh, risk and uncertainty early on. If you if you do it late, if the founders are pooling their equities at a later stage, then that will be less interesting. And it feels like, and I haven't done the math on this, but intuitively, I think that almost starts to resemble an exit just because of the, you're, you already have a valuable equity and you're just reducing the uncertainty around the outcome. Whereas early on, you have no idea, like you basically have, you're expected to achieve a zero outcome, but then by pooling your risks, you're kind of diversifying away some of that uncertainty and risk. So I fe- I, I'm only opinionated about which phase this should be done, but otherwise it's a pretty, pretty blank slate. Um, did I ask you about other ways to fix founder scarcity? Do you have other ideas? Yeah, like, uh, well, the other ones uh, would be, for example, raising the salaries, I guess. That would be one way. Theory yep. sharing would be, but then raising the salaries feel like uh, it would be even more of a, a moral hazard in a way, uh, because it's more immediate. It's not locked up 10 years away. Um, and also, it's just, it just doesn't quite feel uh, right somehow. But, you know, I might be wrong. Um, it doesn't quite right feel right portion comes down to, you know, how it's going to feel to everybody involved, how it's going to feel to the founder, how it's going to feel to the venture capital backers, the people who back the company. You know, do you really want to take out a you know five hundred thousand dollars a year uh, salary from a, a startup that is you know that is not it's not clear if it's going to work out or not, and um, so that would be one way I guess, but I don't feel like that's the way to go. Another way that the de-risking could be done is the way that Silicon Valley or broadly you know the global startup ecosystem has been doing it, and that is by reducing the stigma around failure and also having a serial exposure to startups. So if uh, it might be, it's, it's obviously very risky to run one startup, but if you fail and if you feel that as long as, if you feel that you have a good chance, you will get your next startup, you will get a funding again as long as you do a good job. 
then you can be a serial entrepreneur and run obviously five different experiments over five years, over 25 years. But still, that still is a reduction by five companies. It's not 100 or 1,000 companies. So it just seems like a less efficient way of de-risking. But, you know, maybe less efficient turns out to be the better one. We don't know. Yeah. Cool. Well, well Brock, thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast. Thank you. It's been a great episode. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 